Hello and welcome to A Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by A Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. This will be the last episode of 2019. We will be on break for the next two weeks and see you back on January 8th. Enjoy your holidays. Welcome to this week's episode of A Moon State of Crypto. Since the inception of Bitcoin in 2009, we've seen a spur of development, research, and information accumulation in the crypto asset industry over a decade. Yet, it's still a cumbersome process to acquire high-quality structured data and qualitative information on crypto assets. Due to the inherent heterogeneity of the various crypto assets which currently exist, there aren't even standard methods for evaluating them from a valuation or risk perspective. This is undoubtedly one of the main barriers to mainstream adoption by institutional payers. We're honored to have um, Ria Butoria, Director of Research at Fidelity Digital Assets, to join us on the podcast to discuss some of the most prominent issues in crypto education. From the Moon team, I'm joined by Lanray and Hansen. Um, I'm Ophelia Snyder, your host for today, and Lanray, as our topic leader, why don't you give us an introduction to the topic? Thank you, Ophelia. Since the crypto asset industry came to the forefront of public opinion during the bull market of 2017, the issue of education and accurate information of the various aspects of the crypto asset space has become of the utmost importance. Unlike in traditional financial markets where data about public companies, such as a company's 10K, follow a standardized format and are easily accessible due to regulations, the crypto asset industry lacks the same level of standardization. Despite the public nature of blockchains, information about crypto assets can often be opaque and hard to access. This can range from information about key dates in the history of a given asset, such as when did Bitcoin Cash's hard fork actually occur, to issues with obtaining accurate and reliable pricing and volume data on a given crypto asset. In the role of those, it's the role of those within the industry, researchers, product owners, and developers, to help educate those without an expertise in the industry in order to further expedite crypto assets professionalization and institutionalization no matter how hard the task may seem. This process is important for the sake of both retail and institutional investors, as well as regulators. Ria is one of the most prominent crypto asset researchers within the space and undoubtedly has firsthand experience with the issues associated with education and accurate information in her role. So with that being said, Ria, could you help explain to us, perhaps with reference to your own direct experiences within the industry, what you see as the key issues with crypto, crypto asset education and information access currently in the industry. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for the introduction. Um, so, I mean, I want to start off by talking about why education is important for any new industry. You know, education is needed to attract talent, to onboard users, to get regulator support that encourages innovation and, and attract uh, institutional investment that's going to help grow the pie. Um, and I think crypto education is especially crucial because this group of assets is even more difficult to understand than traditional assets. And, you know, some of the reasons for this is, uh, first of all, the study of digital assets spans multiple disciplines from economics to cryptography to finance, programming, 
and so on. So for investors and service providers and regulators that are really trying to understand these networks, it requires them to at least have a high level understanding of each of these disciplines. Um, and, you know, I think another factor in, in that you mentioned, Lonry, in, in the beginning is that these digital assets don't have a uniform set of data or information reporting standards. So they are not required to file documents with the SEC periodically. They don't have investor relations teams. They don't, you know, host quarterly update calls. And there's no standard way of presenting the data. So it's up to the industry to really agree upon and implement standards that scrutinize the claims that some of these projects are making. And then I think the last thing that I would mention is that information in the crypto asset space um, is shared by non-traditional channels. So digital asset teams don't issue press releases. They share their updates on Twitter, on Medium, in chat groups like Telegram, um, on forums, on YouTube, and on podcasts. So that definitely presents a barrier to, um, to institutional adoption as well. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great point. And I, I think especially one case of where the lack of education or information in the space has been, you know, perhaps most evident has been a, a, around a lot of the discussions of fake volume in the space. So for a bit of context, uh, probably in about 2017, 16, uh, a research on, on medium.com posted an article accusing a lot of these exchanges of producing fake volume, fake volume. So artificially inflating the amount of trading volumes they produce. And since then, a lot of researchers and a lot of kind of crypto asset companies who have reasons to shed light on the ostensible fake volume problem have released reports about this issue. Probably the most prominent of which was Bitwise's fake volume report, which they released as a part of that application for the Bitcoin ETF in the, in the US. And I think that problem in of itself kind of highlights some of the, some, some of the problems which are caused by a lack of reliable information and education in the space. So for, for example, one thing, as a researcher or someone that is trying to work out the fair value of a crypto asset, if we can't even trust necessarily the APIs which we access for price data, because some exchange may not necessarily be providing accurate price data, that can lead to our valuation models being totally off. And then even for a regulator, for example, if they want to approve or disapprove certain products which are built on the underlying of a crypto asset, it's quite essential that they have some guarantee that there's no manipulation or at least that the data they're getting as a part of the application is quite accurate. So I guess that's a more specific example on that point. And I think Rhea, you can take, take it back from here. Yeah. Um, just on that point, the, the challenge, like fake volume is a huge challenge. And I think it's exacerbated by the fact that liquidity is so fragmented in the digital asset space and it's on uh, exchanges that are distributed globally, which makes it really difficult to arrive at like an accurate measure of volume and liquidity. And, and, you know, we can identify exchanges that have fake volumes. Um, but it's also not accurate to say that they don't have any real volume. So it's really, really difficult to parse that out and, and arrive at, you know, a true, uh, figure of liquidity in the space. I mean, I, I think the, 
one counterpoint here is when you're thinking about this in terms of the differences between crypto and let's call it more traditional asset classes. Um, I think a lot of what we're talking about is true for equity markets, bond markets, um, you know, where you do get high quality data and high quality transparency into what's happening. But I think if you think about things like the London gold fix that really was largely unregulated until very recently and was very difficult to understand how pricing was determined um, or, you know, other, other examples from traditional finance, things like LIBOR, for example. Um, I think that uh, it seems like we have a lower tolerance in crypto for let's call it information anomalies than we do in at least certain types of traditional markets. And I I think that's part of the question. Um, And I think that comes out of the fact that we we sort of have to look at ourselves and say, you know, who really is participating in crypto markets? And it's largely people who are highly technical. Um, And and I think that that's been changing over the last few years. But if you think about the majority of the history of crypto markets, it's people who largely um, take this from a more technical aspect um, or who come at it from either a you know, fairly heavy finance background or more likely a, a fairly heavy um, computer science background. And I think that also certainly plays into this conversation when we're talking about um, education in crypto and getting people to be comfortable with the space. It's not just about data reliability, but I think there's also a question of um, the relative quality of that data to other financial products and to other markets, as well as who the audience for that information really is and how they're likely to interpret data. And I think that audience is somewhat different than it is for traditional financial products. No, I totally agree with you on this point, Ophelia. It's actually what very similar to what Ria said at the beginning, right? The normal channels for information distribution in crypto is also very different, right? I think most of the published material information is via medium posts right it's not a peer-reviewed journal um mostly it's just you know someone from a company who has a view writing that medium article um you know within a week or so and then publishing that and then the quality of it is assessed by or the popularity of it is assessed by um, a number of clubs on it but i want to i want to go back to the very beginning what lara said or what, what ria said i think about standardization um of information Right, equity research uh, is, is very common. They use the same metrics. You know, even though Amazon and Facebook are vastly different, their business model, they can both be included in the same equity research report um, using those standardized methods. Do you guys think that we can create such standardized uh, metrics also in crypto? Um, obviously, you know, there's different kinds of tokens. So Bitcoin and a utility token and a security token have very different, you know, models and might need different kind of uh, metrics. But, you know, from where we are now, where there's almost no standardization to, you know, a very high degree of standardization, which we see, you know, in the equity uh, research field, um, how far away from that do you think we are? Yeah, Hanson, I, I think that's a great point. And I very much doubt, especially the thesis that you have around crypto is that, or part one of the theses you have around crypto is that, it really lowers the marginal cost of creating new and just esoteric financial products. I maybe find it hard to believe that we're necessarily anytime soon going to get to the stage at which we have the same amount of standardization among crypto assets uh, for the various metrics which investors use to ascertain their fair value. But I think on a, 
if you take a step back and think about how most crypto assets work on a technical level, for the most part, they all rely on some kind of you know blockchain infrastructure to facil- facilitate the settlement and the trading of, well, at least the transfer of assets for a given crypto asset. And that similarity in structure do, does allow for some amount of standardization to already exist. For example, for majority of crypto assets, if not every single crypto asset, a metric like transaction volume or NVT, a network value to transaction vol- volume ratio, those are metrics which can be calculated and are something which allows you to you know, ascertain something of value uh, into, uh, by a cri- into crypto asset analysis. So you can compare, so you can see the fact that uh, Bitcoin's transaction volume of the last two days has been 6 billion, but Bitcoin privates has been 100 million. That allows some kind of comparison among crypto assets. And especially at the technical level, it can be quite useful because if at the technical level, the building block of all these crypto assets are relatively standardized. It does mean that, you know, when we get to the stage where perhaps a regulator or a self-regulatory body wants to bring in more high level standardization metrics, it could be relatively simple to scale this out to a, v- a vast range of crypto assets. And that's the kind of thing you see with like the Ethereum's ERC-20 standard, like any kind of metric which can be found for a single ERC-20 token can more or less instantly be applied to a whole wide range, whole wide range of uh, ERC twenty tokens, even if their economic models are vastly different. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think we still have a lot of progress to make in terms of arriving at standardized metrics that we can use to make apples to apples comparisons. But I think the first part of it is also developing some sort of taxonomy or grouping of digital assets to make sure that we are comparing um, assets that are similar on similar metrics. So, you know, for example, you have to take into account the fact that, oh, maybe this network is proof of work and this network is proof of stake. So we can't use something like hash rate or coin stake to make uh, a standardized comparison, or this is a UTXO based chain and this is an account based chain. So we have to take those kinds of nuances um, and differences in the base layer technology into account when evaluating these networks. Um, but I think that you know there are data providers that are making uh, that are that are doing work on this and making progress on uh, arriving at a set of standardized metrics that um, that are more accurate. Um, than some of the traditional metrics that we just slap on to digital assets like market cap without considering nuances in token supply. So, you know, one thing that I'm thinking of is realized cap um, that was introduced by Nick Carter and the CoinMetrics team. And that that takes into account like the the cost basis of of coins like Bitcoin that that have UTXO-based chains um, as well as accounting for um, lost or unclaimed coins from forks. Do you have some other example of metrics that are already used quite commonly? Most of the metrics that I know are quite, um, let's say, community-driven. Like, for example, um, we just launched an ETP two days ago um, of an index, and they use some you know, rules-based metrics, um, and they use uh, things like uh, number of commits on GitHub or... Twitter followers, which which are good metrics to to show the popularity, I guess. Um, 
but but they are still far away from you know uh, quantitative you, you know you know manipulable data um you know for for analysis i feel yeah i think uh one one metric that i look at is uh transaction fees that are collected by uh and minor revenue on proof of work and utxo based chains i think that's a, a metric that's relatively less scalable um i think another uh point of data that people consider is the number of addresses um, that exist on a specific chain and as a proxy for users. And obviously, you know, there are caveats to this because for um, a digital asset like Bitcoin, it's recommended that you generate an, a new address uh, every time you uh, transact. So a single user can have multiple addresses. So that results in an overstatement. And then on the flip side, you have users that use um, centralized exchanges and custodians where um, the, the, the holdings of many users is aggregated into one address, which understates the number of addresses. So you have this dynamic. But I still think it's, it's worth looking at directionally where this is heading. Um, and actually today, Bitcoin... On the Bitcoin network, the number of addresses with a balance surpassed the previous all-time high, um, which I think is just it's just an interesting metric to track to, and and a good and a good proxy for adoption. At the beginning, we we said that you know there's a lack of high quality data and also information actually, and that's often correct as seen by Lara's example of fake um, transaction volumes. On the other hand, though, the great thing about the blockchain is that we do have a public database that's transparent, that anyone can see, and where you can change data in retrospect. Um, and so I think there is a lot of, lot of um, merits to that, right? Um, data manipulation is a problem in science and, and, and business alike. Um, but, you know, one of the benefits of the blockchain is that you have immutable ledger of all the addresses that exist, of the transactions between those addresses. Of course, there's limitations because, um, you know, like pooled wallets for exchanges, for example, where you can see the trading volume within that. Uh, but that as itself is quite nice. I do have a question, though, for the general that's um, not completely related to that, which is we're talking about crypto education, right? And one of the things that people say is they feel like, You know, one barrier to mainstream adoption is that people don't understand blockchain. And, and I think they're right in one aspect. You know, it's very hard to, to, uh, you know, find a source where you can read a text that's well explained and tells you how Ethereum works even today. Um, but my question to you guys is, do you think it's necessary that the uh, general public, um, needs to be educated? I mean, Lara and I were talking before. We don't know, understand how SMS work. I don't even understand how how um, you know, email the email protocol works. Um, so you think it's necessary for people to understand how the blockchain backend engine works uh, for you know crypto to become popular? And then a follow up question to that would be: um, If you don't think that everyone needs to be educated for crypto to you know penetrate the wider market, who would be the key people that need to understand it well? So I think there's a, a question here regarding like, who needs to understand this. And I think 
to some degree, I, I agree with you, you know, go take your debit card, walk to the nearest ATM in a country that is not where your bank account is domiciled and explain to me how you're able to take money out of that account and have the money be there and have it be recorded properly. Most people have no idea how that works either. Um, and, and I think that's a question of usability. And I think when we think about adoption in crypto, I think there's a usability question. Um, I think the solutions that are elegant and easy to use, people don't necessarily need to understand specifically how that blockchain was constructed and why it was constructed that way and why certain features were included versus um, taking an approach that maybe you understand the basic outlines, but maybe not all of the detail. And I think there's a question of how much information, um, the question of accuracy versus relevancy. So we do agree that it's not... Uh, necessary that everyone, you know, un who uses crypto applications um, needs to understand it. But then the question would be, who would be the most important people that need to understand it for wide adoption? And I think, Ria, you might have some good uh, views on that. Yeah, I, I think that one of the key stakeholders that need to understand digital assets and, and maybe not to the same detail that the people in the space um, that are building these applications do, but at least like the economic characteristics and to some extent um, how it works on a technical level are regulators because regulators are the ones that, um, that, you know, provide guidelines that determine how uh, how innovation in the space progresses. So, you know, I think over the next five to 10 years, it's really important for them to understand the value of these networks um, so that they can create an environment that allows innovation to flourish. Yeah, I, mean, I totally agree with that. Regulators are uh, one important group of people that need just to understand it. I feel like until now, um, you know, some jurisdictions like like Switzerland, Singapore, I think even the U.S. regulators put good effort in there to understand it, but many are still lagging behind. Another group that I think could be, you know, <laughs> that needs to, you know, be very well educated are the actual people that program the smart contracts or build applications on top of um, blockchains. And that's especially the case I feel for blockchain compared to other tech because it's so unforgiving, right? You make a mistake in a smart contract. You have money in there, uh, one mistake, and, and the money is gone. Real money is gone from people. And we've seen countless uh, examples of that, right? Uh, the first DAO hack in 2016, um, an exchange is being hacked. You know, every year, several exchanges being hacked. The parity hack from the Polkadot ICO. Um, so I feel like, you know, we might have to increase the standard uh, of education in those aspects as well. But I, I think it goes back to audiences, right? we need to be very careful about how we think about addressing audiences and how we provide that material and information that's relevant to people at the level of detail that they need, right? If you think about a completely unrelated topic to crypto, right? Think about natural sciences. Reading nature, like the, the peer-reviewed sort of industry standard that everybody who actually works in the field reads is not something that the average person is going to want to have anything to do with. Why? Because it's largely, it's very difficult to read unless you happen to have that kind of technical knowledge. And I think the point you're making, Hanson, around information sharing at the engineering level, I would argue is actually done fairly well in this space. And people do have a tremendous amount of access, largely because of how public everyone's code is. 
Um, I think that's wildly different than the issues we're having with, um, you know, people, the average person who maybe doesn't understand even what the basic use case is for Bitcoin, let alone how a blockchain actually works. And I think that's one of the things our space struggles with is actually segmenting that information and making it processable for people at different levels of understanding and different levels of engagement and different levels of, quite frankly, like interest in that level of technicality. Yeah, I think if you go on some of these more traditional um, or not non-traditional channels like Twitter, Medium, GitHub, and the white papers that are produced, they have an insane amount of technical detail that can be extremely daunting for a newcomer that's interested in learning about the space. So we definitely need to do a better job of creating more digestible information for for just users of these networks versus the people that are investing in and building these networks. And I think that's true of regulators as well. I think regulators have access to an unbelievable wealth of information on these topics because there are practitioners in the space who come from deeply technical backgrounds that are taking the time to either provide that content um, through presentations, through engaging with their local regulators. And so largely, I don't even think regulators are where we have the largest issues in terms of crypto education, um, or even necessarily amongst practitioners. I think we have a bigger issue with education in the broader sense, um, investor education, um, education of people who actually could benefit tremendously from using these networks. And I think we've yet to determine a standard for what we think and, and how, how, how we think about packaging um, that type of information and making it available to people in a way that's, you know, not quite so tied to a hype cycle. Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Like if you think about people or, you know, this, this idea that crypto can be a powerful tool for people that are in oppressed parts of the world, um, they can probably benefit from using digital assets even more than people in developed parts of the world, but they have, um, like, the much lower knowledge of um, an expertise about digital assets and how they can get their hands on it and why um, it's it can be used as a tool for uh, for freedom. Yeah, yeah, and and just to carry on from there, so I think we've spent a lot of time talking about some of the issues around maybe people in the space or the industry as a whole not being able to properly demarcate who needs what kind of education and information. And then also a good amount of time spending on the need for greater standardization. But then maybe at the same time, I don't think we in the industry give enough, give ourselves or give the technology enough credit for the new kinds of novel information that these kind of networks and this kind of technology can allow for. So going back to the whole thesis around crypto of really reducing the marginal costs of engaging in finance or creating financial products, a side note, on what blockchains allow is that it makes it really easy for or relatively easy for anyone in the industry or any data anal analyst or researcher to get extremely granular detail on how Bitcoin works or some novel thing that happened in Bitcoin, which uh, they would have never been able to get for, say, a public company. Because I guess so the individual investor or someone in, the, in his someone in the garage only really has the only really has Amazon's 10k to play with but in theory someone that acts has access to a bitcoin node 
or maybe Bitcoin in a SQL server has no really upper limit on the amount of granularity they can get. And I think this in the future will lead to a lot more interest in, in granular analysis and investment research coming from people that you wouldn't necessarily think about. And we've already seen good examples of this, of this before. For example, Bitcoin Private, which was a fork of Bitcoin, Coinmetrics managed to find out almost nine months after the incident that Bitcoin Private had had a 2 million unit pre-mine, which you know obviously had a massive impact on the market and the economics of the crypto asset. But it took nine months and just an individual researcher doing a deep dive to find this amount of information. Whilst in maybe the traditional financial markets, something of that sort would be more, much more likely to come, come from a regulator doing a deep dive into a given company. So yeah, I think that's an interest, another interesting dynamic, which we'll continue to see a lot of growth in going forward, hopefully. But I think the issue is in order to make that vision a reality, you need people to have real context around what those metrics mean and a real understanding of that technical, both both the technical knowledge to access that data, but also a technical understanding that is sufficient to contextualize that data. And I think that's a place where we as an industry certainly could help um, in terms of getting, getting to a place where we can help create the infrastructure to make that path easier for people. And I agree with you, maybe it won't be equity researchers, and it doesn't need to be. It doesn't necessarily need to be these large institutions. It can absolutely be individuals that drive this research forward. But I think in order to foster that kind of ecosystem, we as an industry have a you know responsibility to some degree to set a platform that enables that. Yeah, I agree. I think the importance of disclosures um, by researchers and data providers is really important. And I don't think it exists to the degree it should today. So, you know, when when someone just arrives at a data platform and is looking at metrics, there is no clear cut um, definition of what that metric uh is highlighting and then some of the caveats associated with that. But I do agree with you, Lanra, and in that, you know, blockchains are have some of the richest data sets um, that I've ever seen and that anyone has ever seen. And it's available to us in real time, which can allow us to make more timely and actionable decisions if we if we leverage it in the right way. And I think what we're sort of getting at is like with a lot of different things in blockchain this is an infrastructure issue, right? We as an industry haven't developed the conceptual um, or haven't finished developing or finalized the conceptual frameworks that are needed to, to do some of these things. And the actual infrastructure to allow either individuals or groups to do this kind of work. And I think that's a common theme across the crypto space. There's a lot of work to be done um, at an infrastructure level. And I think that's both really exciting and really challenging. And I think this translates into the, this topic of education just as much as it does, um, you know, perhaps in other topics where we are more familiar with discussing it around custody and trading and other elements. But I think we maybe overlook that this educational and research aspect also needs people to um, really develop that sort of base layer of infrastructure. So um, I, I think this is likely a good place for us to um, stop. I wanted to thank uh, you for listening and um, thank Ria for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you next time. This was it from the Amun team. This will be the last episode of 2019. We will be on break for the next two weeks and see you back on January 8th. Enjoy your holidays. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode, 
reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week.